the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Laborious Days, Nefarious Nights, and Rocket Plume Twilights. Dragon Eggs spawn Amber Arrows, which spawn fantasy trilogies, which spawn more Dragon Eggs. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Who are you? I'm Bain Editorial Intern Taylor Panachone. Welcome, Taylor. Um, we have a new uh, intern this this fall, and Taylor is it. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. So I have no idea how these usually go, but I understand this week's podcast is going to be a bit different than usual. Is that true? It is true, because this time we have Bain Consulting Editor Lauren Dixon host the interview instead of me of our author. And Why is that? That's because it's an interview of me talking about my book, The Amber Arrow, and even I, who am fairly confident of my podcast power, am not so filled with podcast host hubris to imagine that um, I can interview myself. So Lauren Dixon, we asked Lauren Dixon, who is an excellent editor and writer in her own right, and who does a lot of work for us here at Bain, um, if, she would, uh, if she would take on the talk, and she did it. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Leiden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. So say it, Taylor. Now here's the news. Excellent. September is here, and we have three new hardcovers to show for our labors and all ready for your enjoyment. Taylor, speak to us on these matters. Tell us about Iron Angels by Eric Flint and Alistair Kimball. This is a different kind of book from Eric Flint. It's not alternate history or science fiction, but a cool kind of monster hunter urban fantasy. And this one was co-authored with actual, real FBI crime scene investigator Alastair Kimball. In the story, a bizarre kidnapping case leads FBI Special Agent Jasper Wilde into the mysterious world of a strange religious cult and even stranger criminals. At the scene of the kidnapping itself, a frightening apparition is seen. Then, a hideously mutilated corpse is found nearby. Yikes. Something wicked has come to the normal-seeming Chicago suburbs. It doesn't take long before the FBI realizes that something truly extraordinary is unfolding in northwest Indiana, and that, whatever it is, the area's huge steel industry is somehow at the center. As Jasper races to intervene and finally put a stop to the horrors, he comes to understand and accept that something very ancient and very evil has surfaced in the world, or perhaps something that is very, very alien. Excellent. Also out is Forged in Blood, edited by Michael Z. Williamson. We're going to talk a lot more about this in upcoming podcasts, uh, but this is basically the red violin done in science fiction. That is that movie where the violin gets passed down from, from one person to the other, except with this, it's a sword, and there's lots of, of gory battles and, and cool warriors. Um, from one warrior to the next, it's this sword that gets passed down, and it ultimately is the sword that ends up in the hands of... Um, of Michael Z. Williamson's uh, heroine in um, Freehold, that novel of his that's so great. And um, I have a story in the anthology. It was really cool to plunge deeply into Mike's Freehold world. I reread all the books and talked to Mike about the background. 
And the result was the story I have in the collection. There are lots of other great ones, including Larry Correa, Casey Azell, and, and others. And, of course, there's stories by Mike Williamson himself in there as well. It's a really cool anthology. I'm really proud of the story I did for it. Um, and it's called Forged in Blood. Taylor, what about the greatest novel ever written? You mean War and Peace? Moby Dick? Yeah, well, okay. In lieu of those, maybe tell us about The Amber Arrow by yours truly, which is now out at booksellers everywhere. And uh, by the way, it's in the teen section at most of them that are physical booksellers, even though adults will like the book, so please seek it out. Lord Wolf von Dunstig is in real deep trouble. He is surrounded by invading enemies and kingdoms fallen into chaos. Along with dealing with the problems of a realm he never expected to rule, Wolf is in love with the elf maiden Saiyan Amberstone. Saiyan once saved his land, now she has lost her star soul and is dying. Ursula Kyler wishes she could control her errant heart as easily as she can guide the flight of an arrow to a target. She tries to escape into the woodlands she adores, only to be pulled back by a band of desperate and brave warriors who need her help. But aiding them will lead Ursula straight to Wolf von Dunstig and to the heartache she is fleeing. Yet evil cares nothing for human feelings. Now Wolf, Ursula, and their friends must find a way to unite the land of Shenandoah against a powerful Roman Inquisitor. He not only controls an imperial legion, he is also toying with magic that threatens the foundations of existence itself. Yet there is hope, even in the deepest and darkest places of the world, and all may depend upon Wolf and Ursul forging a powerful weapon drawn from the heart of a dragon. The Ember Arrow. That is what it's called. Iron Angels by Eric Flint and Alistair Kimball. Forged in Blood, edited by Michael Z. Williamson and The Amber Arrow by Tony Daniel are now available at booksellers everywhere. Find them, read them, fill your September with cool goodness. We're here today with Tony Daniel. Hi, Tony. Hi, Lauren. Nice to be with you. Tony Daniel is the author of Guardian of Night, Metaplanetary, Superluminal, and short stories such as A Dry Quiet War. He's also also the author of two Star Trek novels, The Devil's Bargain and Savage Trade, and the co-author with David Drake of The Heretic. His works are in the young adult series Wolf's Saga. The first book, The Dragon Hammer, came out in 2016, and the sequel, The Amber Arrow, hits bookshelves this week. He lives in North Carolina as an, and is an editor at Bain Books. Tony, since you've primarily written sci-fi, you took a leap into the young adult fantasy genre with the Wolf's Saga series. How did you come to do that? And how is it different for you writing these books as opposed to the, the sci-fi books? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been thinking about this story for years. It's I've never been... I've written fantasy short stories before, so um, but just never a book. And um, I have thought about the idea of the, of the Vikings um, staying, coming over to the to Newfoundland and staying and America being divided up into basically medieval kingdoms um, after hundreds of years of, and even, you know, it's been maybe a thousand years of settlement in the timeline of the book. So whenever I go traveling around uh, and, you know, and, and you know, Lauren, that I've been in a lot of places in, in the country. Um, right. That um, I, I, just have this weird feeling of what it would be like if what if this were the kingdom of that or this or what if this county were ruled by a real count or or something like that where would the where would the forts and the redoubts be if this had to be defended um 
by by sword and crossbow. So um, I always wanted to do that. Um, I was going to do it as an adult novel, and um, I wrote uh, maybe about ten thousand words on that. And Tony, my boss, who is the editor of this book and is my uh, boss here at Bain as well, um, said that she wanted to know the backstory of these people, um, as the who I was writing as adults. Um, what were they like when they were younger? How did they get together? How did they all get to be so close and and such? And so I started writing The Dragon Hammer as sort of a, just a backstory thing. But the way I write is that I can't stop trying to tell a story. And it got more complicated, and then it turned into a book. And I was like, well, this is the book, in fact. Um, it turned out to be better than what I'd started with before. And Tony agreed, and so we we made the Dragon Hammer into a teen uh, fantasy, which is for adults as well. It's easily something adults would like, I think. Tell us a little bit about the world of of Wolf Saga and Shenandoah and Rock and Rose, since you talk about seeing all these these kingdoms established in in America. Can you tell us a little bit about how you established those specific places? I was trying to figure out where it was. I wanted it to be in the south. I wanted it to be a borderland because I wanted the Roman Empire to not have fallen, the Western Roman Empire not to have fallen and to have colonized. And I kind of wanted the south and America to be sort of a weird analog for what it was during Civil War time. So there's a kind of serfdom that is, is really nasty um, and vampiric that might as well be slavery down there. With um with mind control and so the Romans are kind of the bad guys in the book in in a way, um and um so they control most of the American South and I needed a spot that was right on the border where uh, the Romans are trying to invade on up north and take the Viking lands the Calta lands I call them the cold lands of uh, away. Because they have dragon amber, and the Vikings and the Romans have already used up a lot of the this magic substance called dragon amber that they had, and they need it for um, for their mind control and for a lot of other things that become. I can't. I can't. I'll, it'll spoil too much if I said everything about what what it is. But um, I was thinking about where would be the 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 place where, and it seemed to me that around the bottom of the Shenandoah Valley. Um, and, and because of uh, Stonewall Jackson's campaigns there, and, and it was just really cool. I was thinking about all the different ways that you could do some, some fights there with Romans and such. I studied a lot of that when, when I was writing some other stuff. So I just decided that the Shenandoah Valley would be cool. And I, I just like saying Shenandoah because I was going to use Anything that was a Native American name, um, I'm sticking with in the book. So I might change the spelling around a little bit. But so um, Shenandoah is the mark of Shenandoah, and it's ruled by uh, my hero's Wolf uh, Von Dunstick's family. Wolf is the heir now He to the whole thing. He's the Duke's heir, although he didn't start out that way. He started out as um, a sort of a second thought uh, third child, third son, who um, who was never expected to inherit, but things happened in in the Dragon Hammer, and he met during in the Dragon Hammer. He met this cool girl named Ursul um, Kyler, who um, who fell for him, and he he would have fallen for her if he wasn't already smitten with um, 
with his um, foster sister, Sayan Amberstone, who's an elf. So it's really hard to compete with Elf Girl, uh, beautiful, immortal Elf Girl. So Ursula's got her task. So it, and Ursula really intrigued and interested me um, in the first in the Dragon Hammer. I wanted to give her a lot more story, and so um, I really expanded her character in the Amber Arrow. And it's about half wolf, half Ursula kind of book. Yeah, and I, I was going to say that Ursula is actually my favorite character. Um, she's really, uh, I think she's very ambitious and strong, and she also is very caring and kind and generous to people. So can you tell us a little bit about Ursula? Yeah, she is, well, she's redheaded, which is, um, I don't know, if that's not perhaps a good thing, but otherwise. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, redheads are magical. I see. I, you are redheaded, yes. Um, and uh, are you still? Yes, you still are. Okay, I guess people don't change that much. The story about Ursula is that she was found by by bear people. Now, what I haven't... The other part of this world is that there's a lot of magic. And the reason the Vikings stayed is because there's, there's magic that allowed them to stay um, and, and survive. And... There are uh, beings that are half animal, half human, that also have tribes and and um, families and fiefdoms and what have you in this world as well. And Shenandoah is a place where all of the animal people and the um, the Vikings and the Skraelings who stayed around, who they they've been Native Americans who stayed around, they all have. Sort of, it's a melting pot, and they've all integrated together to make this um, really strong, cool, sort of, sort of Narnia-like place. Except Narnia, where the animals are really badass and they're not cutesy, um, and especially the bear people, because they're big, they're as big as bears, and they're bigger than people, and they walk on two legs, and they look like people up until their shoulders when they turn into bears. Very good with things like longbows, which they can shoot as if they were regular bows and shoot a lot very far. So they're they're useful in that way um, as warriors. But they have the Massanutan Mountain area of Shenandoah. They've it's pretty much bear country. In fact, that whole area is called Bear Valley. Fort Valley is called Bear Valley. And um, so Ursula was found out in the woods, allegedly. Um, and adopted by by the Earl Kyler, who um, is the ruler of this area, which is just full of full of uh, animal people who are called Tear in the book. Um, that's the word for them. Um, there's bobcat people, beaver people, a lot of buffalo people, because there was a lot of eastern buffalo. George Washington ran into them a lot when he was out exploring, for instance. Um, there's a lot of eastern buffalo that have disappeared since, so... I like the idea that there's buffalo people and buffalo all around in Shenandoah Valley. So Ursula was adopted by the bear, and she she kind of became the sweetheart of the of that family. And she is the scribe, um, and basically she's she's smart and resourceful, and she's very good with a bow. And she's sort of taken over the administrative stuff from her dad, and she kind of runs the county. He's a warrior. He fought with the old duke, and um, he's not really. He doesn't really like just the, you know, figuring out uh, 
cases of of whose land belongs to who, and that's the kind of stuff Ursula's really good at. So she's she kind of runs things, and her brothers let her because they're also they'd rather be out hunting and doing bear stuff. So um, even though she's human and adopted by the bear clan, she's she's their darling, and um, and she's also incredibly capable, and so they let her um, they let her do pretty much anything she wants in that area. And it all along, she's kind of been groomed because the uh, Earl Kyler was best friends with Luke's with um, with Wolf's father, uh, the Duke Otto. Um, they both of them kind of assumed that maybe Ursula and, and Wolf were going to get together. And it would be a perfect marriage of two very powerful families in the in the Mark of Shenandoah. But um, and Ursula was perfectly happy with that idea when she met Wolf because she really liked him. And he liked her too, but he had already, he already, his heart had been given to another at that time. So she's a little um, bit of a romantic, uh, and she's not given up on it. But she, and she's tough, and she's, but she's also enough of a realist to see that she, her love is doomed. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I just, she's complicated. She's cool. I like her, and she's a really good shot with a bow and arrow. Um, and she saved Wolf's life in in the Dragon Hammer. Yeah, so yeah. I won't give any spoilers away for who she saves in this next one, but she does a great job at it. Yeah. Um, so why is she so drawn well, she's, to Wolf? She's on the cover, um, shooting a amber arrow up into the sky. So <laughs> something goes on with that. You can say. <laughs> you you know that she's up to something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, because for one thing, her parents, um, her dad, the Earl and her dad, um, her mother who's gone, um, who's Helga, I think, or Heidi, I can't remember after her mother, who was a bear person died. Um, she sort of moved into the head female, uh, of the family, the, the mater familis role there. And they, they just talked to, um, the Von Dunstigs and, she was just raised, expected to marry one of the, the three brothers. And when it ended up that um, two of them were unavailable due to death, she and she ran into Wolf, and she really liked Wolf um, because Wolf is a likable guy um, because he's he's unprepossessing. He wanted to be a scholar. He's a lot of the things that she likes, which is that he's not a blustering guy. Um, he wasn't raised thinking he was going to be king of anything. So, uh, and he's he's not the greatest warrior, but he's perfectly competent. But he's not the greatest warrior. Um, and she just it, she, everything that that Ursel thinks is kind of authentic and cool in a royal dude, Wolf is. And so, um, she just she fell for him it's because she was expected to, and she was allow- and she allowed herself to do it. And now it's too late. Something might resolve this. I don't know what's going to happen there. I've got a pretty good idea, um, but I don't have the entire story of of what happens worked out. But I have a feeling um, I know what's going to happen. We'll see in the next book. Mm. Definitely, we'll get a resolution to all that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading the next one, but I might reread the, this one before. Yeah. Well, Wolf had Wolf's gone through some changes by the end of this book. Yeah. So he's had some bad times, let's put it that way. So, yeah, without giving too much away, um, you kind of, 
at a certain point, he it seems like every ounce of his will is being broken. Um, there, there's a point in which he's captured and basically sold into slavery, right? This is... Yeah. Well, it was... Yeah, and, and not just that. He was... Um, he's put in the mines. One of the coolest things... I did... A, I studied Mexico um, for something else I was writing. And they have these silver mines. They're just holes in the ground that are that are round round wound round this was in the old days not anymore but uh with spiral staircases that just go down and down hundreds and hundreds of feet basically they used indian slave labor to um to mine the silver and it was it was kind of horrific some of the descriptions of that of that stuff and it's just the idea of a straight down hole in the ground with a spiral staircase going down around the edge i just wanted to do something with that but basically, it seems like his will is broken in this book. Um, but then there's a, a moment when he comes to meet somebody, and there's an awakening of, of hope and faith. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how he comes to find hope again? Sure. Um, well, one thing that I wanted to do with him is that is I wanted to make him worthy of being the leader. Um, it's one thing, you know, he... There's one thing about being humble and everything, but he never really had the kind of experience he needed. And I think to to be somebody who could sympathize with all levels of his society that he's ruling, and I wanted to put him to put put him through something that um, made him be a really just and merciful guy when he got out of it. Um, so he could be a, so he can be a good ruler. Because he's got a big job ahead of him. He's got to fight these Romans who are really um, massing for a massive uh, attack, which is going to happen in the next book. Although there's plenty of fighting in this book. But anyway, um, <laughs> so that's the one thing about these books. They're clean. I, I, it's the first thing. I, you know, you've read my other stuff. I always put cuss words and stuff and lots of sex in my other works. <laughs> but um, I, I And there's not anything really beyond kissing and and stuff in this one and um there's no cussing all the cussing is just made up fancy cussing like curses and you know and so I, I wanted to do that because i wanted it to be a clean teen sort of thing that um that just wasn't um a, a profanity laced uh ya because i get so sick of them the ones that i've read i just get tired of it um so because i don't think it really speaks to the way teens really are. Yeah, I think teens kind of make up their own words instead of using... I mean, obviously some teens are going to use curse words, but I also think they make up a lot of words because they're interested in creating their own language in their own system of power. Yeah. So it's it's good that you have them use like these made-up kind of things because yeah. I think that's par for the... Yeah, yeah, I mean, and it's... It, I completely agree with that, as well as the fact that I think that people really start swearing more when they're adults. I don't know. It just bothers me to have novels where it's so easily thrown about um, that are intended for for fourteen and fifteen year olds to read, which this one is. So anyway, that's I did that, but I also have a lot of violence um, because I like writing it for one thing. I loved writing gritty stuff, and I just there are a few really gritty moments in this book. Yeah, yeah. I had visceral reactions a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. Not gonna lie, I did. Well, I mean, you know, I'm heavily influenced by stuff like Bernard Cornwell's um, 
works, uh, historical novels and stuff. And, and those just, it, it's just hard not to, not to write about the, the gooey's bad part of, of war. If you're going to write about war, uh, it seems to me that, that you should write about the whole thing. So anyway, that's, that's in there. Yeah. Well, and, but the, where I was going with the, was that there's also, um, I wanted to not leave out because a lot of fantasy, high fantasy, is like the middle the Middle Ages without Christianity. Let's just take the church out and pretend like it never existed, which is insane. And and so I wanted to bring in a real religious framework for all this, and a religious framework that's true and real, and isn't. Um, isn't made up in that there's like science fiction magic behind everything. There's not science fiction magic behind everything in here. There's, there's actually, uh, it's got a religious framework. And, um, I drew on Tolkien and, uh, and Lewis and, and Narnia because those are my big influences. And so I have gods and the gods are sort of like angels. And, and I think that's a deistic teleological place. And um, there is a being who has awakened. Uh, this world is a big dragon egg that we're all walking on. It's an egg uh, made up of baby dragons who are enormous, and their backs are mountain ranges, and their their sides are um, are valleys, and and that's what the world is in this world, in this book, and maybe in reality. The world is a giant sort of clump of of dragons, um, and they're all asleep still. They're still they're they're still they're embryos. But one of them has awakened, and um, his name is Tretz, and he was um, brutally murdered and came back to life in a sort of Christ analogy. Um, and there are followers of Tretz. Land of dragons. He's he's not the Viking people uh, like that wolf the Calta Calta men that wolf is part of they they have a Norse like mythology they believe in the god in divine beings they call them they don't call them gods Sturmer and uh, and Regan uh, the gods of storm and rain and water and such but there is um, a little cult much like the early Christian cult of Tretz followers of Tretz this awakened dragon. Rainer, who's Wolf's best friend, is a Tretzian. And so Wolf is, is open to the possibility that Tretzians are not, um, should not be hanged at first sight or thrown to the lions, <laughs> you know, so. Right. Um, and so it comes about that, that Wolf get that Wolf learns more about the, at base, there is, there is a, there's a good force in the world that's trying to counteract the evil. And the evil is really evil. Um, there is some, I want to talk about that. Yeah. There's a really evil force in this world as well. It's high fantasy, man. You need good and evil. You know, you need real out there, good and evil. You need stark choices for the characters. And, you know, this is not game of Thrones. Uh, (laughs) nobody's, nobody's good. Yeah. There's good guys and there's bad guys in this world. So talk about some of those big bad guys in this book. I mean, Rossifer is, I think a pretty frightening uh, character. He's a nasty inquisitor um, who has um, discovered if he eats dragon amber that it gives him um, some really nasty powers over others. And he's busily consuming as much as he can get his hands on. 
Dragon Amber is sort of the, the concrescence, the the essence of, of Dasein, which is the magic in this world. Yeah, so I think you wrote also an addiction plotline there. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. interesting to see how dependent people get on Dragon Amber. Um, do you want to talk about that? Well, it's a, if you misuse um, the magic, the mag- magic always has a price. That's the reason if you, you know, you should use it only for what you need to use it for and be careful with it because like any kind of powerful thing, it can bite you in the ass and destroy you and turn you into a monster. Rusfer is not being very careful. He has a lot of power. He's been sent over from Rome to take take the local colonist in hand and he's started confiscating their jewelry and, and consuming it. And it's in the more he eats, the more he wants. And there's a lot more dragon amber in Shenandoah than there is in in Vallobac, which is the Roman colony that's just south of Shenandoah. Yeah, it's really wild and and cool to to read about a guy eating jewelry basically to get to, and high basically. Yeah, well, it's not just high though. It gives him actual real power. Right. He, he can destroy things and buildings and people and he almost kills uh right some of our characters yes he does (laughs) like you said this is a three book series how did you keep track of all of these plot lines because you have so many different characters so many different points of views that you write from how are you able to mesh it all together i have to reinvent how i organize a book every time i start a new book it seems like i my old methods go out the window but on these two, um, I've used post-it notes and um, these big fold-out, you know those school uh, project boards that you do science presentations at science fairs on and stuff like that? I bought like a bunch of them and I've, I fill them with post-its. And so it's, it's like each chapter has a long line of post-its of what has to happen in that chapter and how does it relate. And then I've got other boards that are all about backstory and um it's crazy i have like nearly 10 of these project boards they fold up really nicely so i'm carrying them around i can carry them around some of them are about have all character stuff on them some are all about setting and and things about the world and then most of them though are just the plot worked out in in post-it form and i use color coding and Something I never tried before. It worked pretty good with this one, and I'll probably never use it again after I'm done with this series. But um, they, it's a beautiful uh, looking system. Whether it produces beautiful so books you, or not, I don't know. But it's cool. So when you sit down to write, do you unfold all of your project boards and have them around you, so you just are surrounded by yes your color coded system. That's right. I'm surrounded by these project boards, and some of them I keep folded up until I need them. So I have like two or three I usually had out at a time. I've written other books just as easily with, with, you know, with making outlines in Microsoft Word and or with mind mapping software in some other instances and things like that. I don't know why. I just seem to need a different system every time I write a different, uh, different book. I mean, it's all the same, same, uh, telling a story stuff though nothing changes with that i mean i mean if you're working on a different world chances are you're gonna have to use a different 
strategy um, to approach that world because its rules aren't the same as any other world that you've worked on? I don't know. Um, all these writers with their little blogs and their um, uh, and their podcasts talking about writing methods, I find hilarious because I can't do anything consistently like that, and I really don't think they do either. <laughs> I know a lot of writers. I mean, they. <laughs> yeah, I think we all have systems that don't that are. That very wildly, let's say yeah. that. Systems you're absolutely convinced are going to work for the rest of your life when you when you talk about them and use them, and then two years later you're just not using them at all. Yeah. I don't know how to write. Sort of like ideology. Yeah. Could be, yeah. The kind of ideology, yeah. I've, I've come to think of it that way, but it is. But yeah. Well, the, the experience is- tends to... Um, put paid to the plans of war and peace and love. Well, Ursula feels deeply connected to her land. Um, and she feels an obligation to it, um, she, to her family, and her family's deeply connected to the land. And Ursula, in fact, is, um, is in touch with the land in, in deep subconscious ways as well that are, they're going to become more apparent. Um, yeah, that's going to be exciting. She's such a woods, woodsy person. You know, she's she's good at all the administrative stuff of of, um, of feudal society, but she's also a woods. Um, she's a huntress, and she's so in touch with nature and the woods around her that, um, in a way, it's able to speak to her. And she's very concerned about the the there. To the west of Shenandoah, there's these things called the Wild Kingdoms. And there's a lot of, um, when Shenandoah was first settled, a lot of um, half uh, were creatures who are um, crossbreeds between tier, between um, different kind of animal people, who um, are often re- were often rejected and they formed like, they, they got to be pretty evil and they were werewolves and were this and that because they were um, often just outcasts from their tribes and their clans. But um, a lot of them got pushed west, and um, they learned how to, over the years, um, to have real societies again and to to raise regular kids. And um, there's been a... The Romans are really raising havoc out west. We don't know about it quite yet. It's A lot more of that's going to come up next time. But um, a bunch of orphan kids um, who are aware sort of thing show up in the book, and Ursula really has this instinct to take care of them and this feeling of identity with them. And she's very effective at killing the wolves that are chasing them because <laughs> she's a dead-ass shot with that bow. Yeah, when she, when she comes into... Um... To, to meeting these these kids, I thought that was a really great moment. That she it shows something about who she is and what she really cares about, and and it, it's really about you know making sure people are safe. I felt I felt like that about Ursula. Yeah, she just feels. I mean, she she knows deep down that this place she's going to be the ruler of it, and to be a good ruler, she's got to care. Um, 
she even though her brothers are really they're going to inherit and all that she's it's pretty clear that that you know she's the behind the thrones uh person that runs this county this Schwarzwald county it's called um which is basically the top of Massanutten Mountain in Virginia um it's where it is but in this world it's it's just filled with um with animal people and um she's going to be their queen in a way she's going to be their countess and um she feels that very strongly um that she needs to um to to learn how to care and know about them and and such that's one of the things also about this book is that my nobility um and noble people are not um a bunch of parasites trying to uh suck off the the sweat of the uh, of their underlings they're the, i mean there's plenty of bad ones um but um my characters a lot of them not all of them are some of them are commoners but the the ones that aren't they're not bad they're not evil because they're noble um, right well i also find it interesting that ravenel is is a roman but she is not at all like the other Romans. So do you want to talk about her a little bit? Yeah. Well, she's um she's cool. She's a fosterling who was raised in in Rock and Rose and Wolf's family. She's Wolf's foster sister. But she's also um a Roman uh princess from Valabac, which is the the colony just to the south of Shenandoah. And she is um very different from all these pale Vikings. For one thing, she's black. Um and she has um, blood servant slaves uh, who um, she treats very differently than the Romans back in Rome treat there. She's she's much um, she has a much different relationship with them. And by the end of the book, um, the first book, the Dragon Hammer, um, she's come to see that it's not really right, um, and she's she's in the process of rejecting it. But she's got some some guys that really need her now, to uh, to sort of be their mind, be their eyes and ears um, for them. So she's in a better relationship with the fact that all Romans are slavers, and um, she's. I, I kind of think of her as um, the savior of of Rome in the end because she's what. She's the good that can come from that really corrupt and horrible society. And she's she's coming to terms with her heritage. She loves her heritage. She's um it it's made her feel it's given her something because she was raised in this in this place where she looks different and and she's got a different background and she's the enemy um of a lot of, of the folks and she she clung to that um background of hers her religions particularly to Laia, which is the roman empire's religion and um <laughs> she's found a way to she's finding she's in the process of finding a way to um to transition it into something that that if the good guys ever win um what rome could become she's like the good roman girl who um good woman she's 17 but she's also um 
in many ways modeled on Southern Belle types. And so she she reads a lot of romances and she's kind of frivolous in, in her demeanor, just uh, out of spite sometimes. And Rainer, Wolf's best friend, is desperately in love with her. She just is, you know, like Scarlett O'Hara's him all the time. Oh, no, they can't get together. You know, she's meant to marry a prince, not him. I like her because she's just this complicated mess of, um, a lot like her hair. She has a, a giant, um, I think of her, that, who was that woman in the Cosby show that was the, that, that later did um, that really cool movie about New Orleans voodoo? Was it Lisa Bonet? Yeah, yeah, Lisa Bonet, yeah. But I kind of picture it, but anyway, Lisa Bonet's hair, which is this giant mass of, of beauty. And um, it, that's, that's the way that I think of Ravenel's personality. I don't know what that means exactly, but that's that's sort of my metaphor. So in the book, she does a lot of stuff to try to keep her hair contained um, with pins and stuff, and it always keeps escaping. And that's the way I think of her character as well. She wants to be this this pinned-up Roman princess, but she is just a wild woman at heart. And I guess we'll we'll find out more about how she finds that out about herself in the next book. Yeah, we will. She's going to turn out to be not somebody you want to mess with <laughs> if you mess with her mom. That from Ravenel. <laughs> well, because her mom is being messed with, and she loves her mom. Her mom's the only person who's ever really, you know, her mom always came. Her mom is the queen of that area, but she always came and, and saw her once a year while she was a foster. And um, she's just very incensed that anyone would mess with her mom. That and Rossifer, our bad guy in this book, messes with her mom in a big way. Yes, it's very scary and dangerous that those scenes that I I read. So, so this is the second book in the series. Can you give us a little bit of a hint about what's to come in the final book? Rossifer's down but not out, um, so he'll be back. And uh, as a kind of lieutenant, he needs to he needs to meet his ultimate end. And um, the Romans are trying to take over the world and to kill the dragons. That's the, the, there's, because in order to perpetuate this evil dude who is behind all this um, Roman evil, um, the dragons have to die. The only way to do that is to, is to take over the Viking lands where the dragons are very much, um, safe and, and revered and cared for in their way. And we, remember, the dragons are the things that lie under all the lands. Um, and so um, if the Romans are able to, to take over the Viking lands, and they're starting to crumble in these two books, they'll be able to destroy the world after that. They'll be able to kill the dragons off um, and bring on a age of everlasting night and, you know, Mordor like doom. So we don't want that to happen. So there's going to have to be, a, and the, there's a couple of harbingers who serve the, the, the evil wolf killed one of them in the dragon hammer, but there's two sisters who are left. There are these ancient evil things who, um, they used to be elves. They gave their souls to the bad guy, and now they are these things called Draugrs. And the Draugrs are um, are gearing up to destroy Wolf's place and to take over the entirety of the north of America. 
So Wolf is really going to be the guy that marshals the forces to stop that. Or he, he needs to be. We're going to see if he can do it. <laughs> and that's, that's what's got to happen in the, oh. in the next book. So that the Romans got to be stopped or else. Mordor is coming. That's the end of the world. So, yeah. Mordor is coming. The book is The Amber Arrow by Tony Daniel. It's now available at bookstores everywhere in the teen section at Barnes & Noble and other booksellers. Tony, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks so much for, for doing this, Lauren. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals a Leiden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 9 Vivalange Prospero Something had woken him. The movement of air against his cheek, the whisper of fabric against skin, a chime? Perhaps a chime, he thought, though he did not find it in recent memory. The dream of a chime? That was very possible. He had all his life been attended by chimes, buzzes, clicks, and bells, the comfortable chiming of the study clock, counting the hours. The warning bell as a ship broke from jump into real space. The click of a comm switch being depressed. The sharp buzz denoting the end of a class period. Perhaps he was late abed, and his dream mind had produced a chime to rouse him. He took a breath, tasting mint felt a cool breeze kiss his cheek. Well, best he rise then, if he were slug abed and see to the order of the day. He opened his eyes to a dim and featureless chamber. The walls were smooth, the floor was smooth, both dark, reflective enough that they seemed to glow somewhat in the meager light. 
There appeared to be no door in the wall, nor hatch in the floor, nor aught else in the chamber, save himself and the piloting couch upon which he lay. A careful breath before he rolled lightly to his feet, again he tasted mint, and something else, familiar, but borne away in the chill rush of memory. Doors. There had been doors. He remembered the old wooden door, the main door into Jelaza Kazon, the tree and dragon worn smooth by the palms of countless homecoming Corval pilots. But that door had been locked? No, Corval's door had been beyond him. He remembered lying prone on the chilly plain, dry grasses scratching his face, stripped of everything but thought. He accepted that he would never again put his palm against that door or feel the latch work under his hand. He remembered next her voice rousing him, questioning him, prodding him to attend her, to pay attention, to live. I have found us a different door, Vancella. You must trust me. Of course he trusted her. How else? She was his pilot, his life mate, his love. It was only after she had bullied him to his feet and taken his hand firmly in hers, it was only when he had seen it, them, those different doors she had found, that he began to fear that she had bargained poorly for their lives. They were not doors, the portals she had found for them, but tunnels, as dire a pair as ever he'd seen, each filled with a horrifying blare of light. He had tried to stop their advance, to turn, to avert, but he had been weak with dying and the wind that had sprung up to harry him, to harry them, had overpowered him, even in his horror. The wind pushed harder, her hand gripped his, strong and sure, and her voice came to him over the roar, steady and clear. You will not lose me, Dove, I swear it. The last thing he remembered, as the light burned out his vision and the wind filled up his ears, was her hand slipping out of his grasp. And now, this place and him awake, perhaps not dying, not now, or alone in some solitary afterlife. She had sworn that he would not lose her. He remembered that and chose to believe, in this moment at least, that she had the power to guarantee such a thing. He drew a breath. The air was drier, he thought, warmer. Aliana, he called. His voice vanished into the dimness, swallowed by smooth walls. There was no answer. Well. She was not always immediately present, after all, sharing one body as they had these last twenty standards and more. Yet still she had the ability to go elsewhere, beyond his conscious touch. If he insisted, she would answer. 
irritable, perhaps, or a little sharp, which he surmised meant that he had interrupted her at work. But she answered, had always answered. After he had learnt that, despite the evidence of his eyes, she was not dead, but transferred somehow the her of her into but apart from his own personality and thought processes. The how of that transfer and her survival, well, it had been the tree, of course, meddling as it did, and in the case, to good cause. Aliana! His voice was sharper this time. It cut some little way into the silence around him. The air was growing decidedly warm and worrisomely thin. He accessed a pilot's mental exercise to calm himself and walked forward, striking boot heels deliberately against the floor. And heard nothing. He might as well have walked scout silent for all the sound his steps gave up. He reached the far wall and leaned forward, placing his hands flat against the dull surface. For an instant, his palms were warmed by ungiving metal. He was panting now, the air was hot, and she did not answer him. He knew then that she would not answer, that she was gone, not merely absent. At the last, she had not been able to keep her word, which meant he was alone. He sagged against the wall, which vanished under his hands, sending him tumbling headlong into some other place that was bright and cool, though his lungs still labored and she was gone, gone, away from him, and he would die now of being alone. Look at me. A voice snapped. Davios Felium, Clan Corval. The voice belonged to someone who was not Aliana, but the voice knew his name. An ally, perhaps a friend. He made the effort to open his eyes, shuddering, gasping. Though there was air here, only his muscles had locked, and he remembered, remembered the terrible time immediately after after he had seen her fall, shattered by the fragging pellet, blood like crimson rain, and he screaming for both of them, after, after his brain had struggled to accommodate the violence done to it, had he only known it at the time. He had seizures that had taken his breath, leaving him unable even to sob. Pain would slice through his head like so many lightning bolts until there came an excruciating black explosion and he would lose knowledge of everything. Gasping, he looked up into a man's face, twisted with anger or fear. What ails you? the stranger demanded. He tried to get air, enough air to speak, but all he could manage was the single word, the word that told his doom. Gone. A shudder racked him. He couldn't breathe. A hard hand fell onto his shoulder, pressing him flat, even as he caught the scent familiar to him since childhood. Here, pilot, the other said. Take this. 
He saw it before another shudder forced him to close his eyes. Somewhere close at hand, a bell screamed a warning. Dove, eat the pod. Eat the pod? If he had breath to spare, he might have laughed. As it was, he turned his head away and forced the words out, for the other was not clan. He did not know that the aid he offered was... Not ripe, he choked, and knew nothing else. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Bane Consulting Editor Lauren Dixon, to Bane Intern Taylor Panachone, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Did I say your name right, Taylor? You did. Cool. Now, Taylor, as your initiation into internship, you have to read the weird stuff at the end of the, uh, the podcast. Good. Okay. I'm looking forward to it. All right. And a necklace of ancient amber beads filled with frozen mosquitoes harboring the virus that led to the Precambrium extinction event and a 99% planetary die-off for release only if and when ill-wishers have him surrounded. And thanks and fireworks for multiple universes filled with teen readers who will have something new and fun to light up their ongoing existential crises for Tony Daniel, author of The Amber Arrow. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 